Hello and welcome to the Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I'm your host, Leah Pilkonis. On today's episode of AGC Constructor Cast, we are going to talk about marijuana legalization and its impact on workplace safety. The legalization, decriminalization, and allowable use of marijuana in many states has created some noteworthy challenges for the construction industry and worker safety. It seems nationwide legalization may be inevitable. However, at present, marijuana is illegal under federal law. On this podcast, we will be speaking on requirements as they pertain to construction employers. And based on the conversation, if you work for a construction firm as an employee, you can infer how the requirements will impact you and your conduct. So let's start off with some self-introductions. My colleague Kevin Cannon is here to co-host this episode with me. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Leah. Kevin Cannon here, Senior Director safety, health, and risk management. And, you know, this is a topic that has gotten the attention of a lot of our members, as Leah said, you know, the movement at the federal level, but more so on the uh, state level. So I think this will be a good and informative podcast for the listeners. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Glad to have you here today and excited to uh, do this episode with you. So our expert speaker today is Bill Judge with Drug Screening Compliance Institute. Glad to have you on the show, and I thought maybe you could start off by just giving a little background on yourself and what you do. Well, thank you. I'm an attorney, and for 36 years, I have been focusing my attentions on uh, workplace drug and alcohol testing. I started uh, in the early days of drug testing in the mid to late 1980s, and a lot of litigation in those days. Everything was brand new. And I represented the employers at the local level all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in the first drug testing case they ever looked at. Now, lately, probably for about the past 20 years, what I've primarily focused on is research related to state drug testing statutes, regulations, and court cases. And that's pretty much what we do today. We follow federal regulations, obviously, but uh, our primary focus is on states' laws, which is where all the activity is. Looking forward to the conversation today, Bill. Let's start out talking about some of the federal marijuana laws. So as I said at the outset, on the federal level, all marijuana use and possession remains illegal. How does the federal government classify it, meaning how do they classify marijuana, and in what situations are construction firms and their workers regulated at the federal level? Well, we have to remember that marijuana on the federal level remains what's known as a Schedule I drug. What does that mean? Well, in 1970, the Controlled Substances Act was introduced. And in order to clarify what's illegal and what can be used medically, five schedules were established, ranging from Schedule 1, which means there is uh, no medical purpose for the drug and it is highly addictive. Uh, Schedule 2, the drug has some medical uses and and remains highly addictive, and so on down to Schedule 5. Now, marijuana is a Schedule 1 drug. Cocaine is a Schedule II drug. So keep, you know, sometimes it appears like there isn't much rationale to why things are scheduled the way they are. But uh, cocaine still does have some medical uses as a topical anesthetic. So anyway, 
the point is, is that marijuana today remains a Schedule One drug, no medical purposes, and highly addictive. Therefore, no doctor can prescribe it. And then to follow on from that, so Schedule One, can you explain in what situations construction firms and their workers are regulated, the categories that are regulated? Yeah. Construction firms, depending on what the employees are actually doing, can be regulated under DOT rules if they have trucks that uh, require a commercial driver's license, and therefore uh, DOT regulations for drug testing apply. They could be federal contractors. A lot of construction companies are federal contractors under DOD and DOE and so forth, and they have their own sets of rules for uh, drug and alcohol testing, most of which follow the Department of Health and Human Services rules, known as the SAMHSA rules, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration rules. The SAMHSA rules essentially are the foundation of all the federal level, and a lot of states too, drug testing rules on how testing is actually performed. DOT then deals with who's got to follow the rules. DOD, who's got to follow the rules, that sort of thing. So DOD and DOT essentially deal with who's got to follow the rules. HHS or SAMHSA determines how the testing will actually be done. I don't know if that makes much Mm -hmm. sense to you. Yeah. So if I'm a federal contractor working directly for a federal owner, like you said, for example, if I'm a DOD contractor, Mm -hmm. what would happen if I or my company violates federal laws related to, you know, drug testing or use of marijuana? Yeah, well, typically what's going to happen is that the DOD, the Department of Defense, is going to require you to sign a certificate saying that you are following the uh, the Drug-Free Workplace Act of 1988 and its uh, amendments. That, remember, the Drug-Free Workplace Act on the federal level does not require drug testing. It requires certain notifications and uh, education requirements and that sort of thing. But it does not require any drug testing. The individual departments or the individual agency may have their own drug testing requirements, all of which are most likely going to adopt the SAMHSA drug testing requirements on how to test, the collection process, the lab process, the medical review process, and that sort of thing. So if you're a construction company that's doing work with a DOD or Department of Energy or so forth, not only will you have to follow the federal requirements, but probably the local uh, project requirements Mm -hmm. themselves. Okay. Okay. Thanks. That's helpful. I know that recently there's been some movement at the federal level to legalize or decriminalize marijuana for adult use. The Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, that's a mouthful in in the House. Yes, the MORE Act. (laughs) And the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act in the Senate, for anyone that wants to Google and learn more, are two pieces of legislation that would remove marijuana as a Schedule I drug. Bill, can you explain what that means and the potential impact uh, for that across the country if uh, these bills become law? 
Sure. I don't know for sure, but uh, what Senators Booker and uh, Schumer had in mind when they introduced these bills, but perhaps they were following on the heels of hemp being removed from the Controlled Substances Act. That's one thought. But essentially, uh, what the attempt is, is to uh, reschedule marijuana from a Schedule One drug to a Schedule something else. I don't know what. But the attempt would be probably to reschedule it to a Schedule Two, where it uh, can be prescribed by uh, physicians, but uh, only under very restricted circumstances. And what we should remember here is that no doctor can prescribe a drug unless it's been authorized by a combination of the DEA and the FDA who get together to determine which schedule a drug which comes on the market should be included in, okay? The DEA issues the license to doctors to prescribe controlled substances, okay? So if you see someone or hear someone talking about prescribing marijuana, that can't be done because the DEA, a federal agency, can't authorize a doctor to prescribe, quote, prescribe marijuana because it's a Schedule I drug. So that's just a little side note. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit, Bill, about the tension between federal and state law right now and, and how this presents challenges for contractors. We've definitely seen momentum at the state level to legalize marijuana for medical or recreational use. And it seems to be growing and spreading. Uh, Many states have passed laws legalizing it, um, as I said, for adult use, commercial sales. Um, Others are likely going to be voting on this during the November elections. Why is it important for construction employers to understand the laws in the state or in many cases, multiple states in which they operate? What do these laws dictate and how does that kind of overlay with what you just told us about federal law? Sure. Well, it's interesting because we got to remember that if you are a federal contractor, remember that doesn't mean your entire company is now federally regulated. It simply means that those individuals operating and performing under that federal contract must abide by that federal agency's rules, okay? So you can't say, oh, we've got a contract with DOD, that means we're federally regulated. No, it doesn't. Likewise, you can't say because you've got 10 drivers regulated by DOT that that means your entire company is federally regulated. No, it doesn't. Just those individuals who are considered safety sensitive and required to meet the requirements of those federal agencies, they have to comply with federal rules, okay? So what that means then is if you're operating in say 18 different states, you've got to pay attention to the rules of those 18 different states, not just for drug testing, And by the way, there are 29 states in the country that have mandatory drug testing rules that you must follow. But you also have to find out what the marijuana rules are in those states and make sure that you're following those. There may be medical marijuana rules that have limitations on you. There are 37 states in the country that have medical marijuana authorization. There are 19 states at the moment, (laughs) at the moment, which authorize adult use of marijuana. Now, 
that's going to change at the November election, just a couple months away. That's definitely going to change because there are at least five states that have voter initiatives pending for adult use and a number of more states for medical use. So it's going to change. Right now, if you look at the states that authorize medical marijuana use and the states that authorize adult use, and then add to that the states that authorize medical use of CBD or cannabidiol, there's only two states in the country, Idaho and Nebraska, that don't have some form of authorization of either marijuana or CBD. I know, Bill, that as you've just laid out, this is impacting almost every state across the country. It's going to dictate, you need to understand the laws because it's going to dictate the extent to which you can do, as you said, drug testing or make employment decisions based on employees' drug use or probably even, I imagine, um, pre-employment screening. I've seen that you've put together some amazing charts, maps, kind of highlighting what applies where. I just want to make sure the listeners know that you've shared some great PowerPoint slides with us, and we are going to link to those in the show notes. So to the extent that you want to take a look at your state specifically, those PowerPoint slides will help you do that. Yeah, please uh, use those before you go into a new state that you hadn't been in before. Take a look at those maps and see uh, whether or not they apply to you. Thank you. So another question for you. Uh, California, we understand, has recently passed a new law prohibiting drug testing in most instances, (laughs) but they've created a carve-out for construction which we view as an appropriate provision of the law because the construction industry already faces a whole host of hazards, as we all know, and any level of impairment caused by marijuana uh, can lead to additional safety risks. So my question for you is, in states that have not specifically enacted such laws but might be looking at enacting laws prohibiting drug testing, what talking points would be useful in advocating for safety-sensitive carve-outs? Yeah, it's it's important to uh, understand that there are only two jurisdictions in the country that limit or prohibit testing. All of the other jurisdictions that have these kinds of limitations limit discrimination against an individual who has tested positive. Now, why is that an important distinction? Well, New York City and Philadelphia prohibit pre-employment drug testing for marijuana, except in certain safety-sensitive jobs, okay? So they're actually limiting or prohibiting testing. Other actions, like the action you mentioned in California, which has been passed and sent to the governor. The governor's now got till September 30th to decide whether to veto or sign it. It limits or prohibits discrimination against someone who has tested positive for tetrahydrocannabinoid, THC, which is considered like the parent drug of marijuana. So the difference there is that even though it carves out you know, certain jobs in construction and some other jobs, federally regulated positions, the employer at least gets to argue that they can still test and then make a decision whether or not the person who tested positive can safely perform the essential functions of the job. If they can't safely perform the essential functions of the job, then they're not fit for the job, okay? So there's more to it than just simply testing or not testing. 
because the law talks about discriminating against someone who uses marijuana. That's a difference. Okay. Yeah. Difference that makes a difference. Absolutely makes a difference. Now, the other difference in the California law, as in some other states' laws, it talks about testing for THC. Okay. What we test for today, just so everybody knows, if you use marijuana, it breaks down into your system and becomes THC, tetrahydrocannabinoid, specifically delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinoid. That then breaks down within a matter of hours to hydroxy-THC, which then further breaks down within a matter of hours to carboxy-THC. Okay, THC and hydroxy-THC are psychoactive. Carboxy-THC is not. But it's the carboxy-THC which attaches to body fats and stays in your system for a long time. It can stay in your system for days. People say sometimes up to weeks, okay, depending on your level of use. So, but remember what we test for today, typically only, uh, frankly, in uh, the workplace is carboxy THC. So we're testing for a substance that is not psychoactive. Yeah, that is very interesting. I find that very interesting. So did the Arizona Supreme Court, which reversed a DUI conviction because the Supreme Court said, well, wait a second, our statute requires you to find somebody was impaired. Mm -hmm. You tested for carboxy THC, which is a non-impairing substance. Mm -hmm. Can't convict somebody of being impaired when you only find a non-impairing substance. Yeah, and I know Kevin's got some questions he wants to ask you in a little bit about testing, but yeah. now that we now that we've kind of laid that backdrop of the laws, you know, federal state overlay, I want to transition to focus on some specific safety issues. And you know, as you've shared, we've got this patchwork of 30 plus or even more, I think you said states in which marijuana is now legal in some form. And it's really important for contractors to take some time to, in light of what you shared, review current policies, evaluate the need for changes to ensure that employees are working in a safe manner and reducing risk that the company could face if employees are coming to work under the influence. So I want to kick it over to my colleague, Kevin, who, as he shared, is our Senior Director of Safety and Health Services, to ask you some questions about that. Thanks, Leah. Uh, thanks, Bill. You know, it, as Leah just laid out, you know, there's a lot for contractors to understand, analyze, and uh, consider. And you've mentioned before that you've advised contractors, and especially those with multi-state footprints, to develop well-defined drug testing policies. As uh, I guess is the case with California, you know, some of these states with marijuana laws for adult use, you know, once they decriminalize or legalize it, they fail to address or provide any guidance regarding an employer's rights to maintain a policy for drug-free workplaces. So kind of touched on it a little bit, but can you provide yeah. some examples of those that do and what rights employers have under these laws? Well, uh, understand that uh, we've, we've got 19 states that authorize adult use of marijuana today. Okay. Um, every single one of those statutes says that employers need not accommodate the use of marijuana on the job. Okay, so the issue 
really is. Did you use on the job or did you use at home last weekend? You see the problem because, again, when you're talking about carboxy-THC, which stays in your system for a long time and is a non-impairing substance, that's what's being tested for. And so the question then really becomes whether or not these state statutes are addressing the right thing. (laughs) And they're not addressing the right thing because they're not addressing the elephant in the room, which is the fact that we can't test today for whether or not somebody's impaired from the use of marijuana. It's just not possible. Now, there are plenty of people that are working on developing systems that will be able to show us whether somebody's impaired or not, or more to the point, whether or not somebody used within, say, the last three or four hours. There's one organization I'm familiar with. uh, They're out of California. And they are very close to having developed a system that employers can use in a very small device, which is a a GC mass spec uh, device. And it can tell you whether or not that person used within the last three to four hours. Now that's critical because if a person uh, is tested, say at one o'clock in the afternoon, and they test positive for marijuana and they claim, no, I didn't use it at work. I used it last week. And you can say, no, you're not telling us the truth because this shows you you used within the last three to four hours and you came to work at eight o'clock this morning. So clearly the law permits employers to take action if someone is shown to have used or be under the influence of marijuana. So we're kind of suggesting that employers focus more on the use issue right now, not the under the influence or impaired issue, because it's easily demonstrable from these new methods that are soon going to be available uh, for employers. Now, I will say that employers in like Illinois or New York, you need to look at your state's adult use of marijuana laws because those two states have defined what impairment is. And they've defined it in terms of signs and symptoms of use, accidents, lessened performance, failure to follow safety rules. So these two states, Illinois and and New York, are great in the sense that they have given you a definition that you can put right in your policies of what impairment is. Now, that's great, Bill. You know, we were going to touch on the new technologies and you've done a great job of covering those. So I guess the question is, how reliable is this new technology, especially when you take workplace safety into consideration? And I guess a follow up to that is how should these uh, new devices, I'll call them, be used in conjunction with traditional testing? And, And I ask that question because if you get someone who, you know, you're using this new technology. And it shows that, yeah, they've recently used. Should an employer back that up with the traditional drug testing methods? Yeah, that's a great question. When you think about it, you have to think in terms of what methodology is being used in the sense of, are we using hair? Are we using urine? Are we using sweat? Are we using oral fluid or saliva? Uh, What these new technologies that I was talking about use is oral fluid saliva. Now, why is that important? Well, it goes back to that confusing discussion about how marijuana breaks down in your system. 
Remember, it starts with THC and then hydroxy THC and then carboxy, right? Well, the THC and the hydroxy THC are out of your system within probably six to eight hours, okay? So they're gone. So the only thing left to test is the carboxy THC because it's there, okay? Now, why is oral fluid important? Because oral fluid testing has a very limited window of detection, probably 12 to 18 hours after you've stopped using marijuana, that's how long it can be detected in your system compared to like urine testing, where that can be three to four days after you've used, okay? Hair testing for as long as your hair is, <laughs> assuming that you have any, and I'm losing mine every day. But the oral fluid testing is critical here because it's closer in time to being able to detect not only use, but impairment because it's close in time to be able to show that it's not only hydroxy THC, but maybe even THC itself, which is, by the way, required in the California legislation. Does that make sense? I hope it does. No, absolutely. It, it makes great sense. And okay. I think we've kind of covered what's on the market or on the horizon as far as, uh, um, you yeah, know. So, so em employers need to look at perhaps having a combination, as you suggested, but a combination of using urine testing for pre-employment and using oral fluid for reasonable suspicion and post-injury or accident testing, because that's closer to the, the incident. Makes sense. When you use oral fluid. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And you've mentioned drug testing programs and policies. So let's have a little discussion on that. In general, what are the elements of an effective drug and alcohol testing program? Yeah, when companies come to us, we basically look at it in a couple of different components. We first start with what we call the core company policy, meaning if you came to our office and you sat down with us and you said, I want to do drug testing, what we would want to know is the who, what, where, when, and how, and consequences. Tell us who you want to test. Tell us where you want testing to happen. What do you want to test for? What drugs do you want to test for? Have you ever thought about that? And why are you choosing propoxyphene, for instance, which is on your lab list, which doesn't even exist anymore? Why are you testing for that? Some folks are testing for methaqualone. Doesn't exist. Hasn't existed since the 1960s. So you have to think through, okay, what substances do I want to test for? And that's a place where you can look to the federal DOT or HHS rules for some guidance because they're only testing for what's current in terms of being used. And it makes a lot of sense. So we help you develop the, uh, what essentially amounts to your wish list. What is it you want to accomplish with this drug testing program? And don't do a program just because your neighbor's doing one. Do it because it makes sense for you, okay? in your locations. So you start with the core company policy, and then you tell us that you're in 18 different states. Okay, great. We're going to have to help you develop addendum for each of those states for the rules that may differ from that core company policy. 
Then you tell us you got unions. All right, we've got to add some language that deals with the protection of union workers. There's a brand new case out of the uh, First Circuit, which affirmed uh, a recent NLRB decision, which essentially deals with what's known as the Weingarten rights. Most people who deal with unions know what that means. If there is a reasonable suspicion test situation, the employee has a right to consult with a union representative. Okay, well, this new court decision says not only does the employee have a right to consult with the union, they have a right to have that union representative present during testing. Okay, it's a big deal. It involves a lot of different logistics. Can the union representative get there in time? Because the court also said that getting the representative to be present should not unnecessarily delay the drug test. So you consider states' rules, you consider union rights, you consider DOT rules. If you've got four, five, 10, 15 truck drivers that are regulated by DOT, you need to have a DOT addendum, okay? So you start with the core and you have all these other addendum around it. Great answer. And, you know, just, uh, I guess, to close out with a few other questions, that's going to drill a little bit deeper into the drug testing policies. You mentioned reasonable suspicion and random testing policies. You know, they're proactive approaches to detecting and deterring workers from reporting under the influence, while post-accident drug testing is more of a reactive. You know, you're testing because something happened. Of those, which do you believe is the most effective out of reasonable suspicion, random, or post-incident drug testing? Yeah. This is going to be an odd answer for you, probably, but I think they're all effective. They're all most effective for their situation. Okay. Now, I think that reasonable suspicion is the most effective in terms of deterring use rather than random. Random is important. Random is very important for safety sensitive employees who are not frequently supervised. You hear the difference there? Safety sensitive workers who aren't frequently supervised. But reasonable suspicion has to exist. And supervisors have to be trained to understand what it is, what they should do uh, under a circumstances where they believe they get the gut instinct that says something may be up here, uh, something may be off. And understand that the U.S. Supreme Court has defined reasonable suspicion as something more than a hunch. That's it. That's all it is. You don't have to have proof to test them on reasonable suspicion that they're under the influence. You don't have to have proof that they're intoxicated. All you have to have is some fact or facts that goes beyond a hunch. Okay? What is that? Where do you get the hunch? Well, you get the hunch from somebody telling you something, smelling something, uh, hearing something. Okay? That something that you were told, heard, smell, that takes you beyond a hunch. Now you can test them. You, you see the difference? You don't have to have proof that they are, in fact, intoxicated or they did, in fact, use a drug. The laboratory will tell you that, okay? So what you need is some fact or facts that get you beyond a hunch. Post-accident testing, Great, you gotta do post-accident testing. Let me mention something that maybe still confuse people. In 2016, OSHA came out with a position, that's all I'm gonna call it, is a position, not a rule, that automatic post-accident drug testing was inappropriate. 
Well, that sent just a furor throughout the whole employer world because employers were being told that they could only do post-accident or post-incident testing when they had a good faith belief that drugs or alcohol contributed to the incident. Well, what it essentially did was reduce all of the accident, post-accident testing to a reasonable suspicion testing, which is highly inappropriate. So two lawsuits were filed, one in Oklahoma, one in Texas. And what happened, though, was that there was an election. Administration changed over, right? And that new administration said all federal agencies have to withdraw their last two rules and reanalyze them. Well, for OSHA, one of the last two rules was this concept of basically reducing post-incident testing to reasonable suspicion. And so they reversed themselves and they changed it and they said, okay, we were wrong. (laughs) They didn't go that far, but they reversed themselves. And in uh, going back to automatic post-accident testing, which they permit now, they left one thing in place, which was, and you need to check your policies. Now, not only do you test the injured worker, but you have to test anyone whose actions or lack of actions could have contributed to that incident leading to the injury. Okay, so that's my long-winded way of saying I think reasonable suspicion is the best. You got to have random testing when it's appropriate, and you certainly have to do post-accident testing. And one of the reasons you want to do post-accident testing, which we don't have the time to deal with today, is because there are now 21 states that allow you to use that test result to deny a work comp claim. Very interesting. That's where the money is. No, very interesting. I'm glad you touched on that. The OSHA issue, that is. Uh, That was one of the things I was going to ask you to kind of discuss with us. You know, AGC, during that time, we did meet with the folks over at OSHA and raise the concerns. And, you know, I think having them gain a better understanding helped influence where we are today with the policy that they have in place. You've mentioned DOT several times throughout. And I would say some construction firms may not seek the services of outfits such as yours and rely on the DOT regulations as a basis or foundation for their internal policies. In some cases, you know, they may apply the DOT drug testing policies to non-DOT covered employees. What advice would you give employers who are looking to establish a program, but using the DOT as a foundation or basis? Yeah, don't do it. Um, Now, it's okay to look to DOT for the actual testing, you know, the collection, the lab, the medical review part of their rules, but be careful. Too many employers that we come across have a DOT policy for their drivers, and they apply that or use that for their non-regulated employees. Let me give you an example of why that is really dangerous to do. I had a case many, many years ago where an employee, a woman, fell down the stairs and broke her hip. She was tested and she was fired because she tested positive. Well, she came to me and in the deposition of the safety officer, one of the first things I asked the safety officer was when she fell down and broke her hip, what vehicle was she driving? (laughs) Because the DOT rules only permit post-accident drug testing when the person's operating a vehicle. Somebody dies, the vehicle's towed, somebody is cited for a moving violation. Well, (laughs) this woman simply fell down the stairs. Those DOT post-accident definitions and procedures don't apply to her. 
You see how difficult that is? So needless to say, she went back to work. You have to have a DOT policy that applies to DOT regulated individuals. And then you have to have a non-regulated policy that applies based on the rules of the state in which that person performs their work. You can't take and use a DOT policy for everybody in your company. You could no longer today have a single corporate policy. It just doesn't work. Bill, what about, and Kevin, if I could just jump in, because I've, yeah. I've got a burning question. <laughs> what about like a reasonable suspicion checklist? Are there models out there? Yeah, there are. In fact, we have a suggested checklist, but everybody's got to fill it in so that it makes sense in their universe. We firmly believe in checklists. Okay. Because when situations happen, like a reasonable suspicion situation or a post-accident situation, you know, people... <laughs> lose their minds. You know, it's better to have a checklist that you can follow. So we've got what we think is a pretty effective post-accident checklist and a reasonable suspicion checklist. And then can you just say a few words about documentation? So say I'm going through my reasonable suspicion checklist and I decide that it's more than a hunch. I've got reasonable suspicion based on my checklist. What do you tell people with regard to documentation? Documentation, documenting the reasons, the basis for mm -hmm. your need to test, absolutely critical. Why? Because if that individual tests positive and then is terminated or disciplined and they bring a lawsuit, that documentation is going to be critical. Your testimony as to why you determined that uh, a test was appropriate is going to be absolutely critical. If you've got your documentation, your checklist, you can refer to it. You know, you're busy, you've got other things going on, you're not likely to remember. But if you've got a checklist that shows why you did this and when, then that's going to be critical and make it easier for you to testify about why you did what you did. No, good questions, Lee, and thanks for that advice, Bill. Just one last thing from me is you talk about when an employer wants to establish a policy, you know, they have to understand the who, what, whens, and whys they want to do it. And I think that kind of plays into this safety sensitive, right? Understanding, identifying what would be considered safety sensitive in the states that have not already defined it. And I understand there's only a handful that have. Actually, there's quite a long list that has defined Okay, so, well, that would be yeah. helpful to us to, to better understand all of those states. But, yeah. you know, I know you and I have had a conversation in the past where I've kind of alluded to our position that any employee on a construction site, we would consider to be safety sensitive. Yeah. Could you explain how folks who are establishing their policies, how they go about defining what would be safety sensitive versus those that would not fall into that category? Because you have, for a construction company, you have HR yeah. folks payroll, well, um, but you also have skilled craft labor on the project. So, and you would treat each of those differently, correct? Well, and the person that handles payroll, I'd want to know, well, do they ever go and visit the site? Because that may change their status. They may become safety sensitive then, right? First thing I always do when somebody calls me and asks me a question is I say, well, what state are we talking about? What state are you in? Because there may be specific rules that apply to that test. I look at it from the perspective of the test, okay? What rules apply to that test? That's what I want to know. Okay, so the first thing I want to know is, does that state define safety sensitive? If it does, I want to make sure that that's in your policy somehow, either as part of an addendum of definitions or actually in the policy itself. 
How is safety sensitive defined? Has the state limited random testing? I don't know if your audience is aware that states like California, Minnesota, others have limited random testing to safety sensitive workers. And they've defined what a safety sensitive worker is. Okay. And there are court cases where people have challenged that definition as applied to them. They will say, well, okay, that's the definition in the policy and the statute, but I don't do those jobs. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. So you got to be really careful, not just check the state statutes, by the way, but look at the regulations and look at the court decisions interpreting that statute and regulations, because that may change how you design your company's policy. So all of those things go into determining who and what and when you can test people. No, great. Leah, that's um, all the questions I have for Bill. I think he's done a great job of helping explain all that goes into establishing these policies, what needs to be considered, and did a great job of covering the various state laws as well as what may be happening on the federal level. So thank you, Bill, for all the information. Sure. Let me mention one thing, if I can, in closing. If you're regulated by DOT and you haven't changed your policy since January 1st, 2018, you need to, okay? Because DOT doesn't change their rules very often, but they made some very important changes that started January 1, 2018. So please go look at your policies. All right. Well, Bill, you shared an incredible amount of really valuable information. We can't thank you enough. Oh, Kevin, my pleasure. I, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks uh, to all of you for having me. Kevin, I really appreciate you co-hosting with me. Absolutely. Thanks for all the great questions you asked. And as you summarized, I think we covered a lot of ground. So I want to thank everybody out there for listening. We really appreciate it. And this has been another episode of AGC Constructor Cast. Please subscribe to Constructor Cast from your podcast app, or you can stream all available episodes right from your computer at www.agc.org slash constructorcast.